Would you pray with me just for a moment? Our Father, it is our joy now to do the one thing that shows us the glory of God on this earth, and that is to open our Bibles. We open this book that we can hold in our hand, really the, the, the living miracle of the Word of God. And in these pages, in these words, we know the one who created us, the one who created all things, and the one who has called us unto salvation. Might you drive these words deeply into our minds and into our hearts, change us to be more like Christ. And we would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl this day who does not know Christ. Might this be the day that they are introduced to the Savior, to know him, to love him, and to serve him for all of eternity. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm not preaching a Father's Day message as such this morning, but our text this morning really lends itself to the idea of being a father as an appropriate illustration. A father who cares anything at all about his children ultimately will ask and continue to ask a very, very basic question. And that question is, did I make a difference? Did I have an impact? What's the evidence of my influence? What's the evidence of the, my labors of love in the lives of my children, in the lives of my grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren and beyond? And that's really the idea we'd like to pursue this morning. In John 13 and 14, we've been constructing here a multidimensional theology of what it means to live the triumphant Christian life, a life characterized by obedience, by growth, by maturity, by peace, by love, by effectiveness, a life worthy of imitation, a life worthy to be emulated. And we've seen that the triumphant Christian life isn't a secret. It's not complex. It's just filling your life with those elements that create the triumphant Christian life. And so far in John chapter 13 and in part of John 14, we've seen that these elements are confession, humility, gratitude, the church, submission, hope, and filling our lives with God in the person of Jesus Christ, a God-filled life. Today, I'd like to examine an impact-filled life, an impact-filled life. Did I make a difference? Did I have an impact? Now, in fact, my message this morning is not so much an exhortation to serve, although that will have uh, part of our thought, thinking this morning as well. What this really is is a theological test of salvation, that if you are saved, you have an impact. So here's my basic argument this morning, that the genuinely born-again person has an impact through service, that service and labor for the sake of Christ is a marker, it's an indicator, it's a sign of a regenerate person. That there is no such thing as the Christian who has no impact. That is not, uh, that, that's not a category. And to prove this point, in our text this morning, we have this wonderful set of three verses, John 14, 12 through 14, and Jesus is now continuing his encouragement of the 11 disciples who are left with him in the upper room. Judas has been dismissed from their company permanently now. In chapter 14, he's told them that he is leaving. He's speaking of his ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection, but he's assured them that he's returning to take them to where he is, to his father's house. All who believe in the name of Christ will be returned to the Father's house, taken to the Father's house. And so he's asserted in the strongest possible terms that he alone is the way to the Father's house, that he alone is the way to salvation from sin, he alone is the way to heaven. And through him alone, and by seeing and knowing and making covenant with God the Son, you have seen and you've known and you've made covenant with God the Father. And so to come to the Father, you must come through the Son. And he's just exhorted the disciples to fully believe who he is, everything about who the person of Jesus Christ is. And then he told them, at least believe, verse 11, on account of the works that he's done. And now he's going to tell them something concerning these works that he's done, his miracles, his preaching, his ministry. And what he's about to tell them is really shocking. It's kind of astonishing. And so that brings us to our text for this morning, John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, to express my argument this morning that the genuinely born-again person has an impact through service, that service and labor for Christ are a marker, an indicator, a, a sign of the regenerate person, we're going to let this text teach us by just making a simple statement, kind of a restatement of this text, and then we'll examine this statement piece by piece. I'm going to give you the whole statement up front, and then we'll break it down into some digestible bites. So here it is. This is all we're doing this morning. Here's our statement. I'll repeat it for you a couple of times. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church, empowered by God-honoring prayer. I'll give you that a couple more times, and then we'll put it all together. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church, empowered by God-honoring prayer. And one more time, true believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church, empowered by God-honoring prayer. Now, you may not see it yet, but that's all that is, is a restatement of the three verses that we just read. And so let's deconstruct it from the text. Well, let's start with the first phrase, true believers. We have to start there. Jesus makes a very clear correlation, and he emphasizes it with the famous statement of added emphasis, truly, truly. He says that 25 times in John's gospel. It says that what he's about to say is so important you need to pay extra special attention to it. The correlation here is very clear. Whoever believes in me, that is salvation from sin in and through Christ, will also do the works that I do. Notice what he did not say. He didn't say whoever believes in me ought to do the works that I do. He doesn't say that. In fact, if he were saying that, he would use a particular Greek verb form that expresses a hope or a wish. But instead, he uses a verb form which says, this will happen in the future. It is definite. And so this is, he's very clear about this. Now, we'll get to what these works are shortly. But first, we have to establish what the true believer is. What, what is the true believer? What is a genuine Christian by definition? Well, this is someone who is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Being this new creation expresses what Jesus called in John 3, being born again. This expresses what the Apostle Paul called in Titus 3, being regenerated, being washed. This is a person who has had their legal status officially changed from guilty to innocent before God, that they have been transferred from the ranks of the condemned to the ranks of the justified, such that now, of this person, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a person who, by definition, has new priorities, new desires, and these come naturally. This person, for example, has a natural yearning to fellowship with and to join with the body of Christ, the church. This isn't just out of duty or, or responsibility. It's out of this sudden love and affection for the people of God, and you can't help it. First John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The first step in fellowshipping with the church is to publicly proclaim salvation through water baptism. This proclaims and demonstrates not only union with Christ, but union with the church, union with the bride of Christ. The church is not a baptism service company. We ought never to baptize someone who doesn't fully intend to join with the local body. But the new believer yearns for the fellowship of the church. Not only do they yearn for the church, but they yearn to obey Christ in all of his ways. The, the very next verse after our passage here, verse 15, tells us, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so who, who is the true believer? The true believer is the one who has repented of sin, having been drawn and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, having exercised saving faith in Christ, and who demonstrates evidence of the salvation through love for God's people and a yearning to love Christ 
through obedience. So now we can see, though, that salvation is manifested another way. Yes, there's love for the church. Yes, there's obedience to Christ. But the focus of our statement is a manifestation of salvation. True believers do kingdom tasks. They do kingdom tasks. And this is shocking that the true believer, Jesus says, will do all the works that I do. So what were the kingdom tasks that Jesus did? Well, everything he did was about the kingdom. He, he never wasted time. He never wasted a moment. He performed miracles to confirm his identity as the king. That's a kingdom task. His gospel preaching was geared to invite citizens into the kingdom through repentance. His main message was basically repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that was a kingdom task. The training of the disciples wasn't just to help them be better men. It was to train them to promulgate the kingdom message of the gospel after his departure. That's a kingdom task. Even his obedience to the law of Moses in, in every little detail, in all respects, was demonstrating what a kingdom citizen looks like. He paid his taxes. He told the healed lepers to check in with the priest as prescribed in the law of Moses. He kept the feasts. He kept the festivals. He even took care of his mother to honor her. He kept the law. There's only one thing that he never did as a kingdom citizen. He never confessed sin because he had no sin to confess. Now, we're not under the law of Moses, but we are bound by the law of Christ under the new covenant. And so in the same way that everything Jesus did was a kingdom-oriented task, he said that's what you'll do if you're a true believer. Is there any other evidence in the New Testament that we're to have an impact, that we're to have uh, the, the purpose of doing kingdom tasks? Well, there's a few places. In fact, we could clearly make out various categories of impact, various categories of kingdom tasks. Let me just line out some categories for you. There's the task of shepherding. The task of shepherding. First Timothy 3.1 says that if a man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. It is a work. First Peter 3.2, the elders are to, quote, shepherd the flock of God, unquote, among them. Those who have identified as belonging to the local body. And in fact, Peter says you're to do it with eagerness. There's to be a, a, an eager attitude. Some elders or pastors are called and gifted by God to make the shepherding of the church their life commitment, their entire life. And they, they're said in 1 Timothy 5.17 to be worthy of double honor, the financial support of their family, because they, and here's the word, labor at preaching and teaching. And this labor is to be all-consuming, is to be vigorous. There to uh, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. This speaks of being absolutely saturated in the calling to the gospel ministry. The shepherds are to teach with accords with sound doctrine, Titus 2, verse 1, and to do so with all authority, letting no one disregard them, Titus 2, verse 15. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, that the shepherds are to labor, they are to admonish, they are to exercise authority. And these are not easy tasks, not by any stretch of the imagination. This takes years of training, years of preparation, years of experience. And so there's the kingdom task of shepherding. We'll coin the term today. There's also the task of sheeping. And why not, if we're going to say shepherding, of being faithful sheep in the church. Paul expressed his joy toward the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.5. He says, quote, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In context, he's speaking of their financial support of his ministry. In Philippians 4 verse 18, he says that he has received enough to live on and more being well supplied. They were generous toward the gospel ministry. The church at Philippi was sheeping, so to speak, by financing the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Paul told the Thessalonian church to sheep by respecting their leaders, by esteeming them highly in love, and by being at peace among themselves. In other words, not causing relational fires that the elders have to, to put out, being distracted from the real gospel work. The Apostle Peter gave his famous synopsis of what the church ought to be doing in 1 Peter 4, 8-11, and he says in verse 10, 
quote, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what sheep do as good stewards of God's very grace. The writer of Hebrews gave his clear admonition in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. What does that imply? That implies the leaders are asking you to do something or in some cases to stop doing something. There's a task involved there. Some of the most faithful leaders I've ever been around, faithful sheep I've ever been around, are those that, that I say, would you pray about doing A, B, and C? And the faithful ones that, that just blow me away say, I don't need to pray about it. You are my elder. I'm going to do it. That's, that's amazing. Paul gives his summary of various ways that we are to sheep. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This includes the teaching of scripture, of service, counseling and mentoring one another, extra generous giving, leadership, acts of mercy. These are kingdom tasks, the the tasks of shepherding, of sheeping, so to speak. There's the task of evangelism. That's a kingdom work. Now, evangelism may be on a small scale, like the church at Philadelphia, Jesus said in Revelation 3, 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's evangelism, perhaps on a small scale. Maybe evangelism is on a larger scale, like the church at Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 1, 3, and 4, Paul said that he thanked God for their work of faith and labor of love. This is speaking specifically of proclaiming the gospel. The faithfulness of the Thessalonian believers to proclaim the gospel just in their everyday lives, it showed on on a national level. Because within the, the Roman Empire, tremendous fruit was being born such that Paul could begin to name entire Roman provinces that had heard the gospel because of the church at Thessalonica. And evangelism may be on a, on a global scale, on a worldwide scale. Acts 13 records the prototype of the faithful church, the example of the faithful church giving up two of their faithful elders to send them out to proclaim the gospel all over the world. And these church-planting missionaries were, of course, Barnabas and Paul. Kingdom tasks, shepherding, sheeping, evangelism. How about the task of prayer? The task of prayer, you could have broad kingdom prayers. First Timothy 2, 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. You could have narrower kingdom prayers. Ephesians six eighteen, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's perhaps narrower. Or you could be extremely specific in your kingdom prayers. The Apostle Paul requested that the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Kingdom tasks, shepherding, sheeping, evangelism, prayer. How about the task of kingdom-oriented family life? Kingdom-oriented family life. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a kingdom task. Why? Because the king commanded it. It's that simple. Titus 2.5, wives are to be, quote, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. This is a kingdom task because the king has commanded it and we're not to misrepresent the king's word. And marriage itself has been tasked with providing a picture of Christ in the church and we're obligated to, to present an accurate picture. How about children? Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord. These are believing children. Saved children can't do great and mighty deeds in the church or in the world. We're not going to ask your four-year-old to keep the nursery. That would cause all kinds of mayhem. But you know what a four-year-old can do? He can obey his mom and he can obey his dad. That's a kingdom task. And then what does God do with God-honoring families? They become the building blocks of the local church. Show me a church with families that are kingdom-oriented families, and I'll show you a local church that is effective. Shepherding, sheeping, evangelism, prayer, family life. How about the task of suffering for Christ? 
The task of suffering for Christ, the church at Smyrna, in Revelation 2, Jesus said that he knew their tribulation and he exhorted them to, to not fear what they were about to suffer. And he commanded them, this is an imperative in Greek, he commanded them to be faithful unto death. And they were. Shepherding, sheeping, evangelism, prayer, family life, suffering. And of course, our greatest kingdom task, our, our greatest privilege, the number one reason you exist is the kingdom task of worship. That's our kingdom task. Colossians 3.16 gives the basic elements of a worship gathering. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, if you put all of these tasks together, if you, if you coagulated them into one little saying, one little definition, what do you get when you put it all together? Here's what you get. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is from Matthew 28, commonly is called the Great Commission, but the Great Commission is not to be reduced to merely a command to evangelize. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is a command to be the church. It is much broader than just evangelism. It is a command to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them. By the way, the church is to strive to grow and to improve on all these tasks. We're never to coast. We're never to say, I think we've done enough. Even the problem church at Thyatira, which refused to exercise church discipline for the sexually immoral among them, Jesus told them in Revelation 2, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. They were getting better. Now, did you hear all the major verbs, all the action words? Task, works, toil, labor, serve. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, one of the major Greek words used to speak of serving, it's used over 20 times, and about half the time, it's translated to worship, to serve or to worship. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated in the 2nd century B.C., that same Greek word is used 93 times, and it's used almost exclusively to serve, to do something. In other words, there's no such thing as a worshiper who doesn't serve. In some capacity, faith was never, and it never has been just an intellectual exercise. It impacted your calendar, it impacted your bank account, it impacted your priorities, your social life, your family, your friendships, everything. Everything. So, true believers do kingdom tasks. Let's keep adding to our restatement of our text here. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of the church. I'm sorry, built on the foundation of Christ. We'll get to the church in a moment. Built on the foundation of Christ. Now, I, I consider these three verses kind of some of the, from a human standpoint, almost unbelievable verses in the Bible. They're, they're from a human standpoint, it's hard to swallow. Because if you thought that the, the doing the works that Jesus did is shocking, here's the real bombshell. Verse 12, and greater works than these will he do. What? I, I've never raised the dead. I've never healed thousands of people. I've never fed tens of thousands miraculously. So he's speaking first to the disciples. How could the disciples do greater works than Jesus did? Now, he can't be speaking of his miracles because although the disciples did perform miracles early in the history of the church, they weren't nearly to the scale or the magnitude of what Jesus did. But all the works of Jesus were kingdom works, works intended to evangelize and spread the gospel and bringing kingdom citizens into the fold of God. So what did Jesus do? We have to start there. What were the works that he did? Well, on one occasion, Jesus preached to tens of thousands of people at one time. But when he preached to that same group that to be saved, you must fully imbibe Christ. You must take on Christ fully. They must be completely in him. 
John 6, verse 66 records that almost all of those listeners, all of the thousands, turned back and no longer walked with him. After his resurrection, Jesus met ostensibly with the majority of the believers that had really followed him and stayed faithful even through the death and the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 records this was about 500 people. 500. And Jesus had only a limited ministry to the Gentiles, and he never preached out of the local vicinity of Palestine. He had, from a human standpoint, a limited ministry. What did the disciples do, though? He said, you're going to do more than I did. Peter's first sermon in in Jerusalem yielded 3,000 new believers. Acts 2.41, by Acts 4, verse 4, now it's up to 5,000. That's church growth on an unprecedented scale. The rest of the 12 went, and this is just what we know, to Britain, Italy, Armenia, Greece, Syria, Turkey, India, Ethiopia, and that's just a short list, and there are others. Not to mention that last-minute addition to the lineup of the Apostle Paul, who proclaimed the gospel in the cities of Thessalonica, Pisidian Antioch, Syrian Antioch, Damascus, Miletus, Athens, Corinth, Pamphylia, Pergamum, Adalia, Troas, Berea, Caesarea, Ptolemais, Tyre, Sincrea, Ephesus, Cyprus, Seleucia, Salamis, Paphos, Derby, Lystra, and there are many more. Wow. Infinitely more than Jesus ever did. And you might say, well, those are the apostles. What, what can I do? How can I do something that's greater than Jesus ever did? Jesus never proclaimed the gospel in California much less in this hemisphere. Jesus never had children in his home to whom he could proclaim salvation for two decades each. Jesus didn't have 60, 70, and 80 years to serve on this earth. Jesus never had hundreds of the same people to gather with week after week and month after month, year after year, to develop a, a cohesive, unified local church body. Let me put it this way. Jesus, the greatest preacher of all time, never got to pastor a church. This little congregation here, you're proclaiming the gospel in dozens of different settings, including your own families. You're supporting church planting missionaries on three different continents. You're enabling the gospel through our website and through the Steadfast in the Faith website, now going to dozens of different countries in nearly every state in the Union. You're doing that. You're doing that. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 3 when he writes that the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus Christ, That we build on that foundation. We build on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. Meaning that we do valuable kingdom work. And of course he warns, don't waste your time with things that will be burned up. And so true believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ. And now we'll get to the church. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church through intimate relationship with the church, and I'm going to camp on this for a few minutes. Jesus said that whoever believes in him will do greater works than him, verse 12, because I am going to the Father. Now, what does he mean by that? In just a few verses, he'll fully explain what he means, but we're going to jump ahead and clarify that he means he will be asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit upon all who would believe in him. This will happen for the first time at Pentecost, about 10 days after his ascension into heaven, when the church is officially born, and for the first time in all of history, there is a people on earth unified because they are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. From that point on, salvation in Christ will always be accompanied by the the full-orbed ministry of the Holy Spirit and his regeneration, his indwelling, his sealing, his helping ministry. So if we're talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which belongs to every believer, why does our statement say through intimate relationship with the church? Well, very simply, Jesus said, because I'm going to the Father, that empowers the coming of the Holy Spirit, which empowers whom? The church. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation didn't just create a bunch of individuals who get saved and set apart for Christ, it created and continues to create a bond, a relationship, an official association 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. This is what is sometimes called the baptism of the spirit. The baptism of the spirit isn't an experience. It is an initiation into the church of Jesus Christ. And this is an intimate relationship. Why is it intimate? Because we're all bought with the same blood of Christ. We all serve the same commander, our Lord Jesus. And we are all brought into the family through the same spirit. So this is an intimate association. This is more intimate than anything else on earth. And listen, the Holy Spirit is not to be treated as just some sort of personal empowerment from God to make my agenda in life happen. That's not the case. He is God. He is the one who has transformed you to be an integral part of the body of Christ. And now, very, very quickly, on day one, in fact, the church had a means by which they verified the salvation, the indwelling Holy Spirit of an individual. Acts 2.41, so those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who claimed Christ were, first of all, baptized publicly, and second, they were put on a roster, put on a roll. Why do you think they knew there were 3,000 believers? Because they had a list. They knew who was a member. You remember the tremendous salvation story of Saul, soon to be Paul? He's gloriously saved on the road to Damascus as the chief persecutor of the Christians. And after being humbled by Jesus Christ, Paul repented. He was baptized. Acts chapter 9 says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. This is in Damascus. Well, the Jews in Damascus weren't excited about this. In fact, they were furious and they plotted to kill him. He was supposed to be the guy killing the followers of Christ and now he is one. And so Paul had to be let out of an opening in the wall of the city, being lowered in the basket, and so he went back to Jerusalem. And what did he do? What would you do if you went back to your hometown now as a Christian? You would join the church, right? But he couldn't. Acts 9.26 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. Did you catch that? He attempted to join. Now, the word join here, this is, this is not a, a loose word. This is a very tight and a very important word. It means to unite. It means to associate. It literally is the word for to glue. And the church denied his membership. Why? They did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas came forward as a leader in the church to give Paul's salvation testimony to give the fruit of Paul's salvation that Paul had, quote, preached boldly in the name of Jesus, 9.27. And what was the result? So Paul went in and out among them at Jerusalem. They didn't have an amorphous, vague, whoever shows up on Sunday's membership policy. They had those who were members and those who were clearly not members. As one rejected for membership, Paul could do nothing. But as a member... One who went in and out among them, verse 28 says, he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In other words, as a member, he set about to do what? To serve, to have an impact. Why? Because of the salvation testimony, meaning that he had been given the Holy Spirit and he was to be received in the body. Did you see this? They had a mechanism for membership. What was the mechanism? It was the salvation testimony and the result of membership was service. A guy I've been reading recently is turning into one of my current favorite authors, Dr. Peter Masters. He's a pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle since 1970, meaning he's nearing his 50th year of ministry. Metropolitan Tabernacle is most famous for the 38-year ministry of Charles Spurgeon beginning in 1854. And just a few years ago, Peter Masters wrote a fabulous little book. It's well thought out, thoroughly biblical. It's called Church Membership in the Bible. He writes that the members of the Church of Jesus Christ, quote, are to be of one mind, united in doctrine, learning the word, zealously working together for the Lord, and seeking to increase in love for each other. And he wrote this book in answer to the, the sort of current trend of pushing back against church membership. And he says this, quote, 
Some Christians may question the need for a member to be so deeply attached to their church, feeling that to attend, worship, give to the work, and relate cordially should be enough. However, churches were never designed to be just a pulpit and an audience, but active, living bodies with each member sincerely involved in their ministry. And then he gives the the simple purposes of a local church in his study of Acts chapter 2, four purposes, to engage in corporate worship, to be a colony of heaven on earth. Don't you love that? To be a colony of heaven on earth, to make known the glory of God through evangelism and the teaching of the word, and to be the means by which believers pool their gifts and resources in God's service. Now, I want to listen to what Dr. Masters says because he writes with considerable authority because of the history of the faithfulness of his own church body. Except for a brief time when their building was bombed to rubble in 1941, Metropolitan Tabernacle has been meeting continuously for 370 years, and they've never wavered on the gospel. In fact... When official church membership was established in the 17th century, the membership covenant would be read aloud at the beginning of every Lord's Table service. Their membership covenant was and is, by the way, almost identical to ours because it's the same scriptures and same principles. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church. And we'll finish our statement, empowered by God-honoring prayer, Empowered by God honoring prayer. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 13, we see an example of prayer to the Father. In verse 14, an example of prayer to the Son. If anybody says you should only pray to the Father, Jesus would contradict you. These prayers are to be asked in the name of Jesus. Now, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Some of you are well-versed on this, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, so we're just going to reestablish this foundation. First of all, to pray in Jesus' name is not just a magic potion to force God to grant every self-centered request that you have. It's not a potion. It's not a magic formula. It's not just a catchphrase at the end of a prayer. Well, I've heard other Christians saying this. I guess that's what you're supposed to say. When you do anything in someone else's name, what are you actually doing? You're trying to do what that person wants you to do. You're trying to represent someone. Uh, For example, when you're given the legal authority to sign documents, legal documents, in someone else's name, you're representing his best interest, what he wants you to do. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Let me suggest a uh, a few ways to think about this. First of all, and at the most basic level it means to pray according to god's revealed will it means to pray according to god's will it's already revealed in scripture that that christ desires the lost to come to himself that he desires purity in the church that he commands the preaching of the word he commands husbands to love their wives he commands wives to honor their husbands that we're to give to the lord's work that we clothe ourselves in humility on and on all the commands of the new testament all the commands of the law of christ these are the will of god And so with confidence, we can say, I pray on behalf of Christ because I know he desires these things. Here's another way to think about praying in Jesus' name. It means praying from the vantage point of insufficiency. It means praying from the vantage point of insufficiency. We're weak. We're spiritually poor. We're impoverished without Christ. We possess zero worthiness with which to approach God on their own merits. You've done nothing to make God's life easier. Instead, we approach as those who are in Christ. We don't pray, Lord, please provide for my family because I'm such a wonderful person. Instead, we pray, Lord, please provide for my family because the word of Christ commands me to make provision for them and I desire to obey my Savior. I pray this because I believe this is what Jesus would want as revealed in Scripture. We pray from the vantage point of insufficiency. It's the third way to think about praying in Jesus' name. It means praying for your kingdom tasks. It means praying for your kingdom tasks. The first request, the very first one in the example prayer 
given by our Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we start. That's our first priority. It means our prayers are saturated with concern for the mission of Christ on earth, saturated with concern for the mission of the church on earth. Your prayers ought to be heavily weighted with kingdom tasks, all the categories of kingdom tasks that we mentioned earlier. How does Jesus arrange our priorities concerning kingdom tasks versus our own needs? What does he say in Matthew 6, 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then sort of, by the way, all these other things will be added to you as well. One more way to think about praying in Jesus' name. It means, as verse 13 says, praying with a sincere desire for God's glory. Praying with a sincere desire for God's glory. The supreme goal of the Father is to glorify the Son. And so, quite simply, pray for those things which will give the the Son of God glory and will increase His fame. And God will do those things. He will always answer prayers that will glorify His Son. That's a great way to pray. And, by the way, it's a great filter for your prayers. If you're praying for something and you can't think of a single way this could glorify Christ, maybe better just not to go there. And just pray those things that will glorify the Son. True believers do kingdom tasks built on the foundation of Christ through intimate relationship with the church, empowered by God-honoring prayer. Now, I know that as we make this argument, in some of your hearts there may be still one little nail that's not quite nailed all the way in. And I, I want to take one last hammer blow, if I could. If maybe you're still of the persuasion that a true Christian can simply be a person who receives Christ as his Savior and then sits back and lives life with exactly the same priorities, exactly the same everything as before, not really making a contribution to the kingdom effort, but maybe really liking theology, maybe really liking singing Christian hymns and music, or maybe really liking being around Christians. Can I make one final plea to you that true believers do kingdom tasks, that they do live, it's not an option, they do live impact-filled lives? Now, I want to make this plea from the pen of the Apostle Paul, who makes a clear-cut and unavoidable direct connection between salvation and service, that they're married, they're joined at the hip, they're twins. In his classic explanation of salvation by faith alone, Paul writes, and you know these verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. But why? Why did he save you? Why did he give you the gift of faith, the gift of grace, the gift of the whole package of salvation, which includes regeneration and repentance and faith and assurance and sanctification? Why did he give all of that to you? For what purpose? The very next verse gives us the outworking of your salvation. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good, what? Works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This isn't a call to service. That's a call to salvation. You are the workmanship of God. This is a word which means that God is a craftsman that makes you individually just for his assigned purposes for you. It emphasizes something made with a purpose. You're created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, for kingdom tasks. And and listen, this is so important. These works were prepared beforehand. It means before you were ever born, before the earth was ever created. They were prepared for you that you should walk in them. What does this mean? This means that the true believer has tasks set before him. These are kingdom tasks which the king has already commissioned. They're already there before you. Which also means that the one who says, I'm a Christian, I just don't want to do anything, ought to seriously doubt his salvation. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to share the gospel. I'm not going to fellowship with the body. I'm not going to be part of the kingdom work, which has been carried on by every generation of the church. Then you, my friend, are not saved. You can't be. Because what you're saying is, nothing has been prepared for me before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, whoever believes will do the works that I do. Paul said, whoever believes will walk in the kingdom tasks assigned to him before the foundation of the world. 
So there's a clear call to us. You already have tasks set before you. You who do desire to have an impact-filled life, time is ticking by. There's not much left. There isn't much time. So we, we don't coast. We don't say, I've done enough. We don't say, I can't do more. We certainly don't say, I'm not important to the kingdom. If you weren't important to the kingdom, then, then you're not saved. You are important to the kingdom. God has already declared that. And so in the kingdom tasks set before you, we excel, we achieve, we strive. So many times the Apostle Paul told churches, do more, excel still more. Paul uses these types of phrases, fighting the good fight, running the race. There's an exertion, there's a work, there's a labor, there's a toil, there's a service. The shepherds in the church, we are to strive to do more, to pray more, to disciple more, to be godlier, to be more ready, to be more knowledgeable, to be more impactful, because that's kingdom work. Sheep in the church, you are to strive to be faithful, to be generous, to be here, to be learners, to be lovers of one another, to be servants of one another, to make the ministry of the gospel happen more than ever before, to do all that it takes to be the church that you've always dreamt of being a part of. How do you do that? Don't go the one, just make one. That's kingdom work. In your evangelism, who are you praying for? Who are you seeking for Christ? Who are the souls of those that you could picture burning in hell and you in your human effort would do anything to prevent them from seeing the judgment of God? Who are you not just praying for, but pleading their cause before Christ? Who are you weeping for? Who are you crying out to the Lord for? Who are you shouting to heaven for? Husbands and fathers, strive to do more. Don't coast. Men, we're, we're so used to coasting. Love your wife in such a way that she believes herself the luckiest woman on earth. Cherish her, care for her, repent of sin, strive to guide and model godliness for your children. Listen, men, have family worship time. Just do it. This is kingdom work. Wives and mothers, make serving and loving your husband your, your, your calling in life because he is your calling in life. Respect him like never before. Cherish him like never before. Support and encourage him like never before. Love your children like never before. Model godliness, model character, model humility, model that gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the eyes of God. That's kingdom work. And children, you kiddos here, if you know Christ is your Savior, live an impact-filled childhood. You have a mission as well. Serve your parents like never before. Pray for the salvation of your brothers and sisters and all your friends like never before. Have the courage to tell those around you, I'm a Christian. Be a blessing in your home to every single person. Children, you have kingdom work to do. Grandparents, pray for your grandchildren and your children like never before. Serve your family like never before. Support and love and care for them like never before. This is kingdom work. And if you're suffering, if your main job before the Lord right now is simply to suffer, then suffer in a way that would make the Lord proud, trusting in his plan and his purposes and in his divine sovereignty like never before. This is kingdom work. And in your worship, listen and learn like never before. Stop missing church for idiotic reasons. Sing like never before. Pray like never before. Fellowship like never before. This is kingdom work. Wouldn't you want to be the person sleeping in on Sunday the day before Christ returned? Not me. And in your prayers. No more, someday I'll really get my prayer life together. Do it now. Do it now. And to my favorite Christians of all, and I make no bones about this, to you precious older saints who are running your final lap, who are fighting your final fight, maybe right now your stage in life is you're just trying to physically make it through every day. You have a final assignment on this earth, and that is to pray with all of your might, to be consumed with prayer, to be lighted by the Spirit of God, 
to lift up the needs and the concerns of those around you. You pray as if you will see Christ tomorrow. You pray as if all good things depend on your prayers alone. You pray as if the coming kingdom depends on your prayers. You pray as if Christ returning depends on how faithful you are to be on your knees. You pray as if to shake the foundations of heaven with your supplications and to commission the very angels of God to come to the aid of all that you would pray for. You pray those marvelous, unrelenting, repeated prayers made in the name of Jesus until your final impact in this life is to lift up literally with your dying breath those around you who need the grace of God. We have an assignment from childhood in the faith all the way to our dying breath in the faith, and that is to live an impact-filled life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, true Christians live impact-filled lives. Jesus made this abundantly clear. The Apostle Paul made this abundantly clear. There's no doubt. There's no debate. And so, Lord, as a group of Christians, as the local church, we would pray, Lord, to excel still more, to strive for more, as you complimented the church at Thyatira for the fact that they, their latter works were greater than the first. Oh, I pray that for our little body here, Lord. I pray for the men among us. I pray for the husbands and the fathers, Lord. Let them lead their families spiritually, not just in name only, but in reality, to gather their family to worship the Lord in their homes, in their own living rooms, to read the Bible and to sing hymns and to pray And Lord, for the the wives and mothers here, let them reaffirm their commitment to their families, to their husbands, to their children, to their grandchildren. Lord, to to make every day count, to reach out and to be that relational glue which is so vital in our families. And to even the, the saved children, Lord, among us, Lord, to those precious little ones who are so small that that they may still be be silly and childish, and yet there is a, a an abiding love for Christ because they're also regenerate. Let them serve in their families. Let them show the fruit of salvation. Lord, let us as shepherds faithfully shepherd the sheep and let us as sheep faithfully, Lord, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This may be our last day. This may be our last week. This may be our last hour. And so let us be those who have an impact. Lord, we pray to have an impact through the coming Spanish ministry. We pray to have an impact through the upcoming Steadfast Bible Conference. We pray to have an impact on all of our children through Sunday school and children's church. We pray to have an impact on our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. Lord, even in our own ranks here, we, we know that in a group this size, there are likely one or two or three that do not actually know Christ. And we pray that they would come to faith, that the word of God deeply implanted in their souls would spring forth into into vital life. We pray for our children, Lord, that every single one of them would come to faith in Christ, that you would not miss one. And so, Lord, in the grand economy of heaven, I pray that every person here would be able to look back from the viewpoint of heaven and see a tremendous impact that they had and that us as a local body, we, Lord, would be given that crown of life, that reward for faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would do great and mighty things through us individually and through a body to live an impact-filled life. And this is all for the sake of Christ and for his glory we pray. Amen.